Good morning. You know, I, I think what we've tried to do here is take us back to the biblical days because can you imagine that, um, you know, Jesus, when he was speaking many times, probably was interrupted. I can't think of a better story that that was true than um, when he was in a house and he's talking and four guys are up on the roof cutting a hole. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like he's talking, he's probably spitting, you know, because hay and dust and stuff are falling down. So, you know, we get natural interruptions here, whether it's a siren or a big truck going by. And so it just makes us feel at home. So, anyways, um, what I'm going to say today, um, let me, at least for me, is um, both discouraging and hopeful. So, you see if that's true for you by the end. Um, this is quite discouraging, um, but at the same time, uh, profoundly hopeful. So, let me start by saying this. Um, I consider there's an essential truth um, that we really need to get our minds and hearts wrapped around if the journey of faith and the ways of God are going to make sense to us, and it's this. Um, when it comes to the ways of God and His kingdom, we must often, or we, got to get my glasses, we most often must think counterintuitively. Patrick Mitchell, in a book entitled The Message of Love, wrote this. He said, Anyone who follows Jesus must understand that the way of the kingdom inverts the way of the world at practically every point. Christians belong to an upside-down kingdom. Christians belong to an upside-down kingdom. And God confirmed as much, didn't He? When He told, told His people through the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways. Now there's another verse in Proverbs that I'm not projecting that just says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You can turn that around, doesn't lose its integrity. There's a way that seems like death that leads to life. For example, in our culture, and I just experienced this at work this past week, had a guy come to me and say that um, his, his supervisor basically lies to every single person in his department, tells a different story all the time. And it's so frustrating. He covers himself constantly that way. And that's what the world tells us to do. If we fail, it says to lie or explain or justify or whatever. But the, and that feels more natural to us, but the kingdom of God says confess, own. Take suffering, for example. Most of us think if, if suffering comes into our lives, we've done something wrong and we try to figure it out. And yet... Paul and other writers of Scripture say to us that suffering is part of the path of maturity. Uh, it's not the way we think. It's counterintuitive. So I've found what I'm trying to say here initially true when it comes to the topic that I want to think about today, maturity. And if I had a title for this, it would be this. Maturity, say what? <laughs> maturity, say what? That's why it's helpful. Sometimes uh, it it, maturity doesn't seem like what we might imagine it to be, to maturity in the Christian life. Um, that's why it's helpful to return to some of the old writers of the Christian tradition because they seem to affirm that maturity is often backward to the way we think. One such writer, John Owen, a Puritan pastor and writer, and I put this up several months ago, but see if it resonates with you what he has to say, a guy who wrote a long time ago. He said this, older more experienced Christians often have greater troubles, temptations, and difficulties in the world. Just stop there. 
That's counterintuitive. <laughs> That's not what we expect. They may not find their spiritual desires to be as strong as before or have such delight in spiritual duties as they had before. I love it when I find a writer who confirms what I feel. (laughs) Because of this, they feel that grace has dried up in them. They do not know where they are or what they are, but despite all this, the real work of sanctification is still thriving in them. And the Holy Spirit is still working effectively in them. God is faithful, therefore let us cling to our hope without wavering. I spend a good amount of time talking with individuals about their journey with God. In fact, just this week I got an email from a guy out in Portland, I think it is, or someplace, and he wanted to talk, and I asked him, is there anything in particular going on? He said, no, I just feel kind of blah. Just don't feel like I can find God. I can't seem to experience him much. He was saying what Owen said, that he felt like grace had dried up in him. Something was wrong, he assumed. God seemed really distant. And sometimes we're under the illusion that now, as we get older in our Christian walk with God, that we should not be experiencing what it is that we experience that we should feel something different or that we should have more enthusiasm. Only that's not the case for many. And they can't seem to buy into the modern Christianity's incessant determination to be upbeat. They can't deny what they're feeling internally. Scott McKnight, in a book entitled The Long Faithfulness, The Case for Christian Perseverance, says this, Maturity doesn't mean that we're on some steady and never-failing incline up into pure sanctification. I grew up with that thinking in the church. That if you mature, you're just on this steady incline upward. I certainly didn't hear any older people talking about struggle with sin, for whatever reason. might have been my age, might have been whatever. Maybe it wasn't the place, but I didn't hear people talking about struggle. So I thought, surely you're on some steady incline upward if you're growing in Christ. Scott McKnight says no. It does not deny stumbling or messy spirituality. It doesn't deny doubt and problems. It simply means that the person continues to walk with Jesus and doesn't walk away from him in a resolute manner. When you consider the biblical characters with which you're familiar, who would you think of as a model of maturity? Would it be Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Esther? How about King David? And in the New Testament, our minds might go to the Apostle John or Peter or Mary, the mother of Jesus. And without a doubt, I think all of us, somewhere in the top ten, if not the top three, would put the Apostle Paul, right? A prolific writer of the New Testament. But I want to focus on Paul, particularly because of three statements he makes about his own life, his own experience. From three personal revelations by Paul, perhaps we can ponder what is partly involved in maturity that's surprising, even counterintuitive. There's that word again. Let's start at 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 15. Paul is providing a brief summation of the gospel as he embarks on the topic of the resurrection. Perhaps these are familiar words. 
creedal words. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now pay attention to what Paul says next. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Least of the apostles is how this stalwart of the faith describes himself. Most of us would not be inclined to apply that label to the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Is Paul just being humble here? Yes. (laughs) Yes, he is. But not with a false humility. The Bible is not into hyperbole. Paul is saying what he believes to be true. It's honest inventory on his part because he knows himself. He knows what he's done, which he alludes to. He persecuted the church. He persecuted God's people, having them arrested, jailed, even killed. And Paul understands grace because he understands himself, knows how deceived he was and could be, even when he was doing it in the name of God. (laughs) I find that scary, that you could do something in the name of God that makes sense to you, that is terribly deceived. I wonder if we're witnessing that in our culture today. When we do things in the name of God that maybe have nothing to do with the character of God. We might be inclined to think, well, that was before Paul was a believer. So that makes sense that he's calling himself the least of the apostles. But he is now writing as someone who understands forgiveness and grace and considers himself the least. You know, it's, it's not hard sometimes to talk about our sin in past tense, back there, you know. When I was a kid, my parents encouraged me that before I went to bed that I should get down on my knees and ask God to forgive me my sins before I go to sleep, and I did that. And if you'd have walked in the room when I was 8 years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, and you would have said to me, Kent, What are the sins that you're praying for forgiveness for? I'd have looked at you and gone, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just supposed to pray this prayer. It's not bad, especially for that age. But it's much harder when we see it or to want to own it in the present right now. What's going on in me right now? And Paul will continually use the present tense as he talks about himself. I am. I am. He isn't done with these self-revelations. Listen to what he writes in his letter to the believers in Ephesus. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 7, we read this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. The least of all God's people, or said another way, the least of all the saints. Present tense. I am the least of the saints. 
In the climate of today's culture, even the Christian subculture, we might want to get Paul to a counselor. He's too hard on himself, we assume. He's carrying too much guilt and shame as our impromptu and amateurish evaluation. He needs to be more positive. But I'm going to assume that our culture and perhaps our opinions are wrong and that Paul, writing under the guidance and wisdom of God's Spirit, is in fact quite healthy. Perhaps he understands something we don't but should. Something that's actually hopeful. Positive. Hopeful, yeah. But again, Paul's not finished. First he calls himself the least of the apostles. Okay, given what he did. Persecuting, having Christians killed. We accept that. Then he declares himself to be the least of the saints. Wow, that seems harsh. And again, I suspect if any of us could look at Paul's life at the point in which he's writing, none of us would put that kind of label to him. We'd kind of go, my golly, what are you talking about? You're such a mature individual. Look at how you suffer. Look at how you love. Look at what you're writing. Look at what you've come to understand. How can you call yourself the least of the saints? Do you notice that the categories are widening? (laughs) He's the least of the apostles. That's a small group. Might have been a little more than 12, but not a big group. Least of the saints. That's a little bigger group. That's a little bigger group. Keep that in mind. Paul wrote a couple letters. I want to speak to something real quick, just a side side um, note here for a moment. Paul wrote a couple letters intended to combat the dangerous heresy of Gnosticism. You don't need to hang on to that. Just understand that there's a couple of components of Gnosticism that fly in the face of what Paul is saying through these self-descriptions, through these revelations. And while acknowledging that defining Gnosticism can be elusive, two core components of this wrong way of thinking is that with enough knowledge, whether of God or of oneself or both, we can eliminate from our faith journey the necessity of suffering and the ongoing struggle with sin. That's at the core of Gnosticism. If I just get enough understanding, then I can avoid suffering and I can avoid the ongoing struggle with sin. And Paul says, uh-uh, not true, not true. With that in mind, let's read Paul's third personal reflection. 1 Timothy 1 is our next stop. Paul's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's just gotten out of jail, most likely. And he's writing Timothy to instruct him on how to help people in the journey with God. Here's what we read. Chapter 1, 1 Timothy, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul has just described himself as the worst of sinners. Not once, but twice. He's gone from seeing himself as the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to the worst of sinners. Seriously, Paul? Does he really believe that? Aren't you being a little hard on yourself? I mean, I can think of a lot of people who have done far worse than Paul did. Need we go very far back into history? Apostle Paul Hitler. Apostle Paul Putin. And though it sounds like this is a comparison thing, it's not. Because Paul understands the gospel and that the gospel leaves no room for comparison. Jesus told a parable about that, right? Not a good place to go. Not getting a leg up on somebody else. This is a man who knows what's true about himself. Not only back then, but now. I am worst of sinners. Years ago, I don't think I've told this story here. Years ago when Columbine, remember Columbine? Speaking of shooting in Cincinnati last night, probably the beginning of this kind of behavior in our country might have started back with Columbine when two young men went into a high school and shot people. And a friend of mine, who's no longer with us, was a leading psychologist living in the Denver area and he was contacted by a TV station and asked to come down to the campus. They wanted to interview him. And so he did, he obliged and went down. It was being taped, camera, lady interviewing him. And she said to him this question, how are we going to wrap our minds around this senseless shooting? To which my friend responded, until we understand that what was inside of those two young men is also inside of us. We're not going to get very far. The reporter became indignant. True story. Stopped the recording and said to him, I would never do such a thing. And then with that, stormed off, bringing the interview to an abrupt and premature end. True, you and I may not do that. But do we understand what's inside of our hearts? Do we understand what we're capable of? And the Apostle Paul says, I do. I do. And so should you. So should I. Now I've left out an important detail to these self-proclamations on the great Apostle Paul's part. I find it startling. Perhaps you will too. It's this. There's a chronological order to when he writes each of these. In other words, in simplest terms, the older he gets, the worse his evaluation. <laughs> the older he gets, the worse his evaluation of himself. That fact suggests that as Paul gets older, as he comes to understand the gospel, as he becomes even more aware of the pervasive and insidious nature of sin to which the gospel is good news, he grows more troubled about who he is. 
I find that discouraging, and I find that hopeful. I'm not surprised, not only because that's my personal experience, but because of what transpired for another biblical character named Isaiah. Isaiah, in the sixth chapter of his prophecy, is confronted with the holiness of God. That confrontation leaves him in distress about himself. Leaving him with the expression, woe is me. The closer he gets to God, the more he becomes aware of what's true about himself. That, my friends, I think is maturity. The closer we get to God, hopefully as we're growing older, the more we're going to come troubled like Paul about who we are. And if we're not careful, the one way we want to combat that is to shrink sin down and think, well, I'm not that bad. I wouldn't do that. But do you know what's in your heart? Do we know what we're capable of? That's the same thing driving Putin lives inside of me. (laughs) The lust for power. The wrong use of power. The disregard for another human being. At any given moment for my own benefit. Which says to me that the closer we get to God, the more we become troubled about who we are. That's maturity. Scott Sauls, pastor and author, once suggested this. The more we become like Jesus, the less we feel like Jesus. (laughs) I find that discouraging. I find that hopeful. (laughs) And C.S. Lewis, how can you disagree with C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, here's what C.S. Lewis said. I've been trying to make the reader believe that we actually are at present Creatures whose character must be, in some respects, a whore to God. As it is, when we really see it, a whore to ourselves. This I believe to be a fact. And I notice that the holier a man is, the more fully he is aware of that fact. (laughs) I find that discouraging, but I find that hopeful. I am proposing that this potentially startling reality is part of what true maturity looks like. When we're tempted to believe it looks like this, Paul is saying, no, it actually looks like this. (laughs) But there's one more revelation here by Paul about himself. And in each instance of these three times when he proclaims, I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the saints, I'm the worst of sinners. It leads him to a deep appreciation of God's grace. I'm the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15. Of this grace I was made a minister, even while I'm the least of the saints, this grace. 1 Timothy 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst but mercy. (laughs) Paul's revelation about himself leads to worship on his part. It's worship because of the unfathomable reality that God would and does use him, uses us despite the reality of what we know to be true deep within. If anything will transform us, if anything is going to transform us as believers, it's not more knowledge about ourselves. It's not trying harder to rid ourselves of shame and guilt. It's not self-actualization. 
It is rather the worship of a God who pours his love over us, forgives us, people who are so terribly undeserving. Even when they are years down the road in their faith journey and think that they should be further along. That kind of person is a humble person. That kind of person is the person God takes notice of. So here's how I would define maturity. A growing awareness of what is true about oneself that leads to an even deeper appreciation and dependence on God's grace and mercy. Paul doesn't wallow in how big he is, or how bad he is, I mean. He wallows or he revels in the incredible grace of his God. That's maturity. Let's pray. We're reminded in one more way, Lord, how this whole faith journey thing really is about you and what you've done. It's not about us. It's not about getting our act together. You have secured our perfection the moment we cross the threshold of heaven. Until that day, give us the courage to wrestle with our ongoing flesh and selfishness so that as we come back to the table that we're about to partake of, it has deep, deep value and meaning to us. And may we be continue to be amazed, Lord, at how you use imperfect people. As Marty said weeks ago, you have made it your plan to partner with fallible, screwed up people. Never thwarting your work. Help us to rest in that truth. Help us not to fear what is true about ourselves. Help us not to do what is so destructive to our faith, which is to hide and pretend and deny, but to come back to you for the mercy and grace that Paul knew so well and wanted others to know. Thank you that we can look at this man who we consider a pillar of maturity and hear the struggle, the ongoing struggle in his heart that gives us hope as we can walk the same journey that he walked. Thank you even now, Lord, as we come to the table. May it in some new and fresh way breathe life into our souls and give us hope because of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen.